Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Oh, Anita, you're alive. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. That's great. How about you? Um... You might need to get some bail money set aside for me. That's how I'm doing. Are you calling me from the state prison? I am. They now let you FaceTime from the state pen after you have stabbed somebody in the face with a pencil. It's good that you're used to having your audio recorded. Oh, that's true. Okay, that's not very funny. But today was a homeschool day, so <laughs> I'm feeling particularly... Oh, full of rage because so you're in your own form of of prison yeah and that's why i'm wearing these glasses i don't actually wear glasses but i was trying to trick my kids into thinking that i'm a teacher so they would listen to me it's not working oh not working okay. yeah not at all but you want to hear the crazy thing about this mel mm -hmm. so last week our school district had a meeting and they got together and they were like, okay, here's the numbers of COVID in our area. And they're going up right now. Like a lot of schools are closing back down and going to hybrid learning and doing all of these different things. And our school district got together and they were like, oh, things are getting worse. And then they're like, let's vote. And all of them were like, we're voting to send everybody back to school. <laughs> and I'm like, what? That makes zero sense with the data you've been given. But I have three pieces of me. The first piece of me 
is so thankful. I'm like, I don't even care. Everybody can die. Everybody can get coronavirus. I just can't teach my kids anymore. That's the selfish part of me. And then the responsible part of me is like, um, you guys made the worst decision that I can even possibly think of. And then the realistic part of me is like, it's going to change again. So it doesn't even pay to be planning for the future because it will change probably before they start school up again it will have to change yeah that's what i was going to ask you how long do you think it would actually go to in person well they said it's supposed to start in person next week but then we had like that huge spike so i don't know if they're going to rethink it again the thing is is i i mean i understand our kids it would be way better for them to be in school but it's like the squeaky wheel is getting the grease and maybe not the reasonable wheel so uh but i'm just not saying anything because <laughs> i told you why like i'm sort of like yay and i'll just see what happens but i feel bad for the teachers i know what a year what a it's what hard a enough year. to be a teacher anyway i know and then they're like hey guess what you got to change this and plan a whole new curriculum and then they're like oh and by the way you have to change it again and plan a whole new curriculum again and we'll give you 2 weeks and then they'll do it again so Meanwhile, all the teachers are thinking, I should have gone into computer science and learned coding because yes. <laughs> this is crazy. Or any other occupation like in the entire world besides nurses. What's up with you, Mel? Are you stabbing people or are you good? I'm only stabbing people in my mind, but okay. I went to Shreveport, Louisiana, and I'm back. Shreveport. Yeah, what was that about? So there's an event every year in Shreveport. That requires a vocal coach and a music director to be there working with some kids, and it's really fun. And we were not sure if this was going to happen, of course, because it's 2020. So what ended up happening is I went to Shreveport, and the vocal coach stayed home where she lived in Michigan. And then we had her on an iPad, and she worked with the kids, and then I ended up doing my usual music director responsibilities in person so it was great everything was very socially distant and and responsible and it was fun to work with the kids super weird traveling though can i just say why do we have to distance so much in the airport and then you get on the plane and i flew american and they did not block out the middle seat i was still touching people shoulder to shoulder did you breathe right in their faces yeah but my mask was on so it didn't do any good um i told you my theory right what um i told mel before she left that she was above all else not allowed to get eaten by an alligator because she was going to louisiana which i don't even know if they have like a lot of gators there but i think they do and my theory is is that you socially distance in the airport so that if a gator does get you it only gets one person and the gators aren't allowed on the plane and you know what your theory Worked. It saved my life. So I am in you one piece. You did not get eaten by a gator. Yep. Did you see anything fun while you were there? I saw the inside of the venue where we were, and okay, that's it. And my hotel room. Did you eat any alligator? No. While you were there. Anyway, um, but I'm back. I made it. Good job. Yes, Anita. We've had some more people sign up for our Patreon. What? 
you guys are the best. Thank you. Keep signing up. Yeah. We, we're we just kind of at this crossroads where you know how it is to be a widow. You have to, like, make decisions of how you're going to use your time. And there's so many things that we're trying to juggle. And it's like, how do we make this a long-term thing? How do we make this our priority? So this is just a way that we're trying to make the decision for ourselves. And we've loved making the podcast. So help us. I know. And it's been so fun connecting with everybody. And we love hearing stories when what we have said has helped others or the stories that we have put out has helped other people. So we want to keep that coming. And Anita, do you want to tell us a little bit about the three tiers? Why? Yes, I do. We have the widow friend, which is $5 a month. And that way you get to be our friend. And then... (laughs) (laughs) I, I remember now. The widow friend is $5 a month and it helps us to pay for our online hosting of our podcast, which if we stop paying, all of the podcast episodes go away forever and ever. And then we have the $10, which is the Widow Bestie, which is, you know, like, you're a little bit more special to us. And that, I don't know what that pays for. You get a shout out on every episode, which you are subscribed to as a Patreon, a Patreon, a patron. And then we have the Widow Wife, which is the most supportive a patron can be. That was kind of a tongue twister. And you're going to get some extra stuff if you're a widow wife. Such as a Q&A and input into what our episodes entail, behind the scenes footage. And a shout out. And a shout out. Like our friend David Kelly mentioned to us today, he said he was willing to forgo one cup of coffee per week in order to support our patreon so oh that's super nice a little extra shout out for you david kelly awesome yeah so it's really not that much um but if you would consider supporting us we would love that and if not we're still here hopefully until we can't do the hosting anymore (laughs) so thank you special patreon shout out to gabe lozano aaron posick jenny barrow christine anderson Diana Becker, Sarah Morris, David Kelly, Rachel Barbosa, and Karen Cornejo, a.k.a. The Wine House, a.k.a. Karen from Canada. Thank you, Patreons. We love you. I mean, patrons. Gracias. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We're a couple of young widows, and we're always trying to figure out widow. Widow, we do now. We do now. Now. Yay. Now. Warning: the following interview contains topics that may be sensitive for some listeners. Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms.
This ad was paid for by Rockhouse Financial, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Every once in a while, Mel will text me and she'll say, oh my gosh, we need to interview this person. And I'm kind of like usually the person who tries to contact people to get them interviewed. And she was like, you have got to try and get a hold of this person and see if she can be on the podcast. And so I was like, okay. So she was like, listen to this. Her name is Melissa. Mel is Mel's name, obviously. (laughs) Her husband's name was Scott. And her husband died on November 6th. That's insane. The same day Scott died. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. And I didn't know anything else about the whole story. And that's when I sent an email to Melissa. (laughs) Well, you are part of a a widow group that we're a part of. And you had posted something that I think piqued Mel's interest. And so then she looked up more details and found that out. So Yes. And I don't want to spoil all of these things because her story, at least the little bit that she shared in that group, was amazing. And... If just that little amount was amazing, I can't imagine the rest of the story. So we're going to let her tell us all about it. So this is Melissa Ponder. And hi, Melissa. Hi. <laughs> thanks thanks for uh, agreeing to be on our podcast when we contacted you cold and you were like, I don't even know who these ladies are. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I am currently living in Gilbert, Arizona. And it's a beautiful area. There's a lot of, quite a few widows I have found out as well. Um, I am remarried. I have two sons, one that is in high school. He's a junior and one that's in eighth grade. They both play club volleyball currently. It's really big. It's really big here. Um, First tournament this weekend. So we're excited. Um, I teach school now, which is not something I ever aspired to do, but it's something that fits in with my kids' schedules. And I have the same breaks and summer break and, you know, things that really come into play when you're put in a situation like this. (laughs) Um, I am remarried to a law enforcement officer. He's a lieutenant with the sheriff's department here. He has two kids himself Um, a daughter, a 21-year-old daughter, and an 18-year-old son. And they are obviously already graduated from high school and daughter just getting ready to graduate from college. And I don't know, we've combined families and we are actually doing well. It's been five years. That's awesome. Let's go backwards. And um, why don't you give us the story of how you became to be a widow? Okay. Ready, set, go. All right. Um, I was living in Arizona, late 20s. I was actually divorced at that time. I um, had married a a guy that um, played football at ASU here, and um, he had a really bad, he obtained it over a couple of years, but a really bad um, Percocet, Oxycontin, um, Soma addiction, unfortunately. Um, It did end up ending our marriage. And so I was kind of in the mindset of I'm not, ready to get married again. I don't want to do this. It's, you know, not fun. And (laughs) um, I was working for a subsidiary of Harley Davidson at the time. I handled their extended warranties in the motorcycle industry. It was really, really fun. I got to travel lots of places. Um, 
I got to go to dealer shows. And um, one of these shows, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the place was packed. The city, you know, it multiplied by 70,000 people during that weekend. And so there was a lot of people there. And the only place to sit was up at the bar at a Red Robin. And so I um, was with my supervisor out of New York. I lived in Arizona. I was with my supervisor out of New York. And he was somebody that I uh, was actually trying to ignore <laughs> and get away from a little bit because he kind of thought he was a Rico Suave type. And I wasn't, wasn't having it. Wasn't having it. No. I could hear this guy next to me um, at the bar talking in a super, super deep, thick Southern accent. And of course, it intrigued me because I, I couldn't really understand what he was saying, but it was, it was great. Um, we ended up knocking elbows on accident and turned around and looked at me and said, you know, sorry, and kind of started a little bit of a conversation. Um, anyway, I ended up pretty much hanging out with him all weekend at this dealer show. I, um, him and his friend and me and my supervisor, it wasn't like a one-on-one -on -one thing. He, um, had a dealership in South Carolina and it was actually a used motorcycle dealership at the time. Um, we became really good friends. He, uh, I didn't know like all the personal stuff about him. He didn't know a lot of personal stuff about me in the beginning, but just became a really good friend of mine. Um, over the next year, he reached out to me, told me that, you know, he had caught his wife doing some things that he was really upset. I um, kind of, you know, talked him through that and said, I hope, you know, you can work things out for you. It did not happen. And from there, um, it just became more, more of a serious, serious friendship, I guess you would say, but it was long distance. Um, I met him at a couple of places. I flew out to San Diego, went to motorcycle auctions, went to a few races, stuff like that. And just over the next year and a half, um, it just kind of evolved from a friendship into something more romantic. And um, he came out to meet my family. Once my family parents met him, they said, you'll be moving to South Carolina. There's no question you're going to be moving. And I, you know, I kind of shrugged it off and thought, it's not going to happen. Um, it did happen. Four months later, I did give up my job and it was a very lucrative job for me. And so at that point, I knew that the relationship was serious and this was something that um, was going to go somewhere. And so I did. I left a, a high paying job and moved to South Carolina to a foreign country for me because South Carolina is a pretty foreign compared to Arizona. Um, I had never seen so much green in my life. I'd never seen so many windy roads. I'd never um, eaten barbecue that way. I didn't. <laughs> Carolina barbecue. Carolina barbecue, a lot of mac and cheese, a lot of fried chicken. It was amazing. <laughs> I ate like I never ate before. So you left the desert, dry, super hot, awful Arizona I to did. Go to South Carolina. I have did. some shrimp and grits. That's, mm. oh, yes. <laughs> that sounds amazing, okay. actually. Focus, Anita. Focus. Okay. Okay. okay, keep going. I loved it out there. I did feel a little 
odd. I was a fish out of water. I didn't have the accent. I was blonde and tan and there was a lot of Southern bells, you know, dark hair, really pretty. just, but I was in love and that's, that's where I belonged. Um, our relationship, obviously we got engaged, um, after our wedding, we got married in January of 2002. Uh, he was approached by Suzuki corporate and because he was pretty much selling more motorcycles than their Suzuki dealership in Spartanburg, South Carolina, they wanted to give him a franchise, which made sense. That was kind of his dream. And so he did, he obtained this franchise, expanded the business, expanded the building and started um, as a, uh, a national Suzuki dealer, ship bikes all over the country which kind of comes into play, you know, as the story goes on. Um, he had this map in his office and it showed dots of everywhere that he had shipped a motorcycle to. And there was a dot all over the country. So he was doing really well. I worked at the chamber of commerce there. It was more of a social job for me. It was just really fun. I got to set up business after hours meetings and just rub shoulders with all the politicians and dignitaries in, in our area. It was really fun. It was just a lot of fun. Um, we decided that I was 30. He was 29. We might as well start looking at the whole family thing. Um, we broke ground, started building a house. And during the course of all that, um, we found out that he had a low sperm count and I had endometriosis. So two things, you know, two, two bombs went off. And so we knew we were going to have to have some doctor's help. So um, built our house, got moved into our house in January of the next year, which is 2003. And um, that summer is when we started all our fertility process. And we went to a dealer show in September. We went to visit my family in Arizona in October in Arizona. We, I took a pregnancy test while I was in Arizona at my brother's house and actually found out that I was pregnant and our fertility had worked. And so that was super exciting. Um, you know, we called everybody and anybody. That was a, a big deal. And, you know, started making plans and preparations to be a mom and a dad. We flew home. Um, I was very sick. Um, I, I had a, a decent amount of morning sickness, just a, a, a lot of nausea, a lot of, you know, not being able to eat. Um, but I really didn't care. I was over the moon. I was so excited. He was so excited. He is an only child. And, you know, just the thought of him having a child was something he was so excited about. And then we had his mother who was over the moon calling, telling everybody just, you know, this was, this was her dream. She was going to be a grandmother. We, um, you know, kept selling motorcycles. We started making preparations at the dealership for the holidays. And, um, one morning I got up and he actually beat me to work, which was not, not normal. And I had to pass the motorcycle dealership on my way to work. Um, 
but I wasn't feeling too well. And so he got up, went on to work. I got up and I got my nausea under control and um, passed the dealership on my way to work. And I remember passing it and seeing him outside with a customer and I honked and he blew um, a kiss and waved at me. And that was literally the last time I saw him alive. That was November 6th of 2003. I will back up a little bit. We had our first OB appointment on Tuesday, November 4th, and we got to go to the doctor together and hear the heartbeat of our baby. And he actually wasn't going to be there for that first appointment and something pushed him to go. He felt like he needed to surprise me. And so he met me there at that appointment and, um, it was just exciting for us, you know, to hear that, that, what, what, that water, water sounding heartbeat, you know? Um, yeah, like we were, whoosh, 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 yes, whoosh, whoosh. yes. And we were, we were both very giddy about it, you know, like, oh my gosh, we're having a baby, you know? Um, so we, you know, left that day. He went, I went home, he went back to work. Um, and then of course, two days later he was gone. I was at work. Um, I had just talked to him about one o'clock, maybe, maybe one thirty. He was getting ready to sponsor the Wofford College football game that weekend. The Suzuki dealership was going to give away a four-wheeler and a go-kart. So really, it was just a way for him to advertise for free at this big football game. And so all we were doing all we were going to do was pass out tickets and it really was whosever ticket we drew was going to get a free go-kart and another one was going to get a free um, four-wheeler and so he had called me and wanted me to help him with his verbiage what they were going to say over the intercom at the football game and stuff like that so we talked a little bit about that that afternoon and we got off the phone and you know it was the normal i love you see you later type of thing and then I got a phone call about 3.30, I want to say. I was going to head out to the dealership that afternoon and kind of take the afternoon off again because not feeling all that well. I did get a work call that I needed to take some business materials to a business. And so I put the things in my car and started heading that way. And my phone rang and it was one of his vendors. It was actually his credit card vendor, the person that handled all of his credit card machines. And they were trying to get out to the business and she couldn't get there because all of the roads were blocked off. And she said, I, I'm trying to get to Scott's business and there are cops everywhere. There's helicopters flying above, N media starting to show up. She's like, I really think you need to get out here. I don't really know what's going on. And so I turned my car around and um, immediately called his cell phone, which went straight to voicemail. And then I called the business phone and it would ring a couple of times and then the answering machine would go off. So I would leave a frantic message. I did that probably 20 times back and forth between his cell phone and then the business phone and then his cell phone. And then I would called my mom in Arizona and said, I don't have any idea what's going on. I'm trying to reach Scott. Um, there's a news, there's a media van pushing me up the road. I'm going 80 miles an hour and this person is on me. And, you know, so just pray mom. I don't really know what's going on. Um, I pulled up 
to this kind of Y in the road where you could go left or you could go right. And they had everybody stopped at the right, at the way that you could go right before you got down into this curve. So I pulled up to this, uh, to the blocked roadway and I um, walked up to a cop and said, that's my husband's business. I need to get down there and started running. And the cop started running after me and just grabbed me and said, you can't go down there. Um, but you know, you're, you're the wife of the owner and said, yes, that's my husband. He owns the business and his mom works down there because my mother-in-law was his office manager as well. And so I just kept saying, I've got to get down there. I've got to get down there. And he said, well, let me make a phone call and find out, you know, what, what they want me to do. And so he did, he called somebody and he said, Hey, I've, I've got uh, Melissa Ponder, Scott Ponder's wife. Um, what, where do you want me to take her? What do you want me to do? And they said, go ahead and take her home. Well, they could have driven right by the motorcycle dealership, but instead he took me on a like seven to 10 mile detour around the countryside to avoid the dealership. And again, I had no idea why, because nobody was telling me anything yet. Um, he made small talk with me while we were driving and he asked me, you know, a little bit about us. Are you from here? Obviously I'm not, I don't have the accent. And, um, told him that, you know, we'd gotten married a couple of years ago that we had just found out I was pregnant. And then he immediately froze, which I, you know, I took notice of, I didn't know why, but I did take notice of it. Um, he took me home. When we got there, he asked me not to turn on the TV, not to turn on the radio, and then also not to answer my phone, which I thought was bizarre, but I said, okay. He told me to go on in and he'd be in in a minute. And I heard him call somebody down at the crime scene, I'm guessing. And he said to them, I have Melissa home now, but um, the wife is pregnant. I repeat, the wife is pregnant. What do you want me to do? I, I heard, I completely overheard his conversation. And so at that point, I'm thinking, what in the ever living hell is going on here? And so, um, you know, walked in, I, my house started having people funnel in for like the next two hours. I walked around my house. I couldn't see the dealership from my house, but, um, in the distance you could, but we had trees that kind of blocked it. And so, um, I had people just started funneling in my neighbors, um, more police officers, some victims advocates. I didn't even know what a victims advocate was at the time. Um, but you still don't know what's happened. I still have absolutely no idea. It, the other people know. Everybody and not else you knew in, I want to say, in Spartanburg County, South Carolina, because it was all over the news. Now, it didn't say who it was yet, but it yeah. said the business. Well, everybody there knew who owned the business. And so... Again, I'm coming up with all these stories in my head because nobody's telling me anything and I can't turn on, you know, the TV. They oh didn't gosh. want me to see the helicopters flying above that, you know, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure there were sheets and stuff over their bodies. I'm pretty sure they just weren't out there laying open like that, but they just didn't want me to know anything at the time. What were you feeling? Well, this was my thought. Scott, um, he kept a great deal of money down there, cash. It was in a vault. 
most of the time locked. And the reason he had it down there is because people would come in and want to sell their motorcycles. And so he would buy used motorcycles off of them because that was a big money-making business for him. Used motorcycles makes way more money than, than new. And so he always had a lot of cash on him. I mean, truthfully, he probably had 50 or 60 grand in the, and it was in cash. In, but again, it's because people randomly stopped and sold their motorcycles to him. And so my thought was somebody came in, somebody tried to rob him. He probably shot them. And now we have this to deal with. So that's what I had led myself to believe because nobody was telling me anything. And so I had absolutely no idea the enormity of really what had gone on down there. At about six o'clock that evening, I was standing looking out my glass front door and I saw Spartanburg County coroner drive up my driveway. Now, anybody in their right mind would see coroner coming up their driveway and they would go, why, what the heck, you know? It didn't even register with me because, again, I had convinced myself that he shot somebody. And so him being dead was not, that wasn't even a, a thought. So they came in. They asked me to sit down. They said they had some news they needed to deliver. And so I, I did. I sat down. And I remember the woman, you know, she, she tried to be gentle but stern at the same time. Like, this isn't something you can really sugarcoat all too much. And so... She said, we had an unfortunate event happen down at your husband's motorcycle dealership today. Um, Scott was shot and killed. And I remember looking up at her and I, I, I mean, I remember saying, no, that's not what happened. He shot and killed somebody, didn't he? And she said, where did you get that information from? And I said, I, I, I don't know. That's just what I thought was going on down there. And she said, no, Scott was Scott was shot and killed. And I remember kind of scanning the room of all the people that were there. And I saw a, a married couple friend of ours. He was standing over to the side and I could see the tears rolling down his face. And as soon as I saw that, I, it hit me hard that this was true, that Scott was shot and he was killed. From there, I immediately started thinking of his mother. Like, oh my gosh, where's his mom? His mom was down there. I've got to get a hold of her. This is her only child. Um, there's no way she's going to be able to handle this. What, what are we going to do with his mom? You know, and, and I'm like begging to call his mother. And I don't think they were going to tell me all that yet because I guess legally they had to make sure everybody was told in a certain order. So I had to make sure her husband was told, you know, things like that. And so, but because I was so adamant, they were like, there, there's more, you know, to this story. They said, your, your mother-in-law was also shot and killed. And there's two, two more bodies that were discovered down there. And so I asked them, is one Brian Lucas, which was his service manager? And they said, yes, they confirmed that. And then I asked if the other one was Chris, which was a mechanic. I knew those four people for sure would have been down there that day. And they said, we don't know for sure. He didn't have identification on him, but I knew, you know, I knew those were the four people down there. And so at that time, um, kind of the world just started spinning. I immediately, like anybody does when they hear the worst news ever, you know, started 
started sobbing, said, I'm pregnant. I have a motorcycle dealership that just landed in my lap. What am I going to do? What I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I had, you know, my bishop from church come over, sat and talked with me for a bit. Um, had two of our closest friends there. One of his best friends owned a motorcycle dealership up by Charlotte, North Carolina, which was about an hour away. Um, him and his wife came down. They were there for a while. I did not talk to my family at all that day because they were screening all calls coming in and out. And they made sure that my family knew everything that was going on. And my family started their preparations in Arizona to be out there by the next day, which they were. Um, I, you know, it's crazy because, and I'm sure a lot of widows, widowers can, there's a lot of blur there. Like from that moment through, you know, the night, mostly, I remember trying to go to sleep. Um, but there's no way. I mean, seriously, who sleeps? Who eats? Who who does anything? I mean, I it, it's just it doesn't doesn't happen, you know. And so my bedroom window faced the motorcycle dealership. And just to give you know people an idea, the dealership was approximately two to two two hundred fifty yards down the road from our home. It was a it was a rural area, but it was a a lot of traffic, but it was a rural area. And so I got up, I, I do remember getting up in the middle of the night, looking out my bedroom window. And of course I cannot see anything, but I can see those huge construction lights they use at night when they're doing, you know, nighttime construction and they want you, they want the workers to be able to see everything going on. I could see a lot of those shining over the dealership. Couldn't see the dealership itself, but all I could think of at the time was I just want to go put a blanket over his body and make sure he's warm. I mean, I just kept thinking that, like, I just want to make sure he's warm. I knew he was dead, but I couldn't stand the thought of him laying out there and his body being cold and um, just not, not a good thought. So when you said that um, when the coroner's van drove up like you didn't even think about that and that any sane person would except for I don't think that they do when the police officer came to my door which I was sure that my husband had tripped and needed stitches like they don't send a police officer to your door for that right right but never did my mind think oh he died you know because that's like way over here in the realm of why would that you doesn't think happen that? <laughs> yes yeah. Yes. That happens to other people. That happens on the yes. news. Law and order. Or Dateline. <laughs> so I'm I'm right with you on the like, oh, really right. I should have probably figured that out. Right. I didn't. And and other people have said that to me. Like, didn't it like hit you hard when you saw the coroner? Like, no. No. It did not. Especially when they weren't telling me anything. I think Which is it, so crazy. Oh. oh, that that was one of the things that was the hardest for me is I felt like everybody knew before I did. You know, and people were trying to call my phone and people were trying to get a hold of me. Of course it was shut off. Um so yeah, that's um that's pretty much how I remember the day. That was the day it happened. Obviously Anita and I have been through a sudden and shocking death, but not by a gunshot and not at the hands of somebody else. 
Um, and because the grief is so much, right? Because you're trying to process that. Were you even able to think, well, who did this? Like, let me go figure that out. Or are you just in the, I'm grieving, this is not real, I'm sad, what the heck? For me, it was actually all of the above. I was, it was all of it thrown together because I couldn't for the life of me imagine who would have walked in there and shot everybody. And I actually didn't know the details yet. I wasn't ready for the details. I was pregnant. I needed to hang on to my pregnancy um, because that's all, that's what I had left of him. And so I didn't want to know how they were found. I didn't want to know the crime scene. I didn't want to know any of that yet. It was just, it was too much for me, but I was curious. Sure. Like who would walk into a very family oriented business? Because it really was, there were teddy bears sitting with big bows for Christmas, sitting on top of the four wheelers in the showroom. It's not like, you know, you walked in and there was all these um, Hell's Angels hanging out everywhere. It wasn't like that. And don't get me wrong. I love Hell's Angels. I worked for, worked for Harley Davidson. So, so yeah, I don't mean to, uh, don't, don't mean to talk like that, but I really, really um, did think a lot about that. And that was a question law enforcement had for me too, as the days came on. Do you know anybody that would have wanted, you know, did he talk about anybody he had problems with? Did he ever come home and say, you know, I had somebody come in that was really weird today. And as crazy as it sounds, he did not. He, there was nothing like that. We didn't have conversations like that. And I felt like I knew everything about the dealership. So for this to happen was, it, it completely pulled everything out from under me because this was not something I could have ever, as any widow or widower, I, I would have never pictured becoming a widow to a murder. I could have seen him wrecking, possibly dying on a GSXR 1000 race bike. I could totally see that. Um, but not somebody coming in and shooting them to death. No. Did you start to like go down the rabbit hole of like dark things? Like maybe he had secrets from me. Did you start to have like, or were you like, no, I know him. I know that none of this was happening. Or did you start to have like some of those like paranoia so, type thoughts? In the beginning, I was absolutely not. I know my husband. I know everything about him. I know the books. I know who he does business with. I know um, the money, where it goes, where it comes from. With the exception of I didn't pay our bills. I, I didn't even know who they went to. So, and there might be others that can relate, can, can relate to this. I didn't know who we paid our mortgage to. I didn't know who the gas bill was paid to. I didn't know when the garbage came. I knew none of that because he said, no, don't worry about that. I, you know, I got all that. Don't, I'll just have it automatically. So don't worry about it. I literally had no idea. I didn't know how to turn on our electric fireplace. So there were things that I didn't know, but they were not things that I felt like I need, like I didn't care. Um, we had two safes in our home. I had, I wanted to know how to get in them. They had life insurance policies, uh, guns, they had things in them. I actually didn't know how to get into those either, but I didn't care. I didn't, that wasn't my thing. I don't care. You know, that was his thing. He had um, strategically put them in the house, you know, so that if anybody ever broke in, they probably wouldn't find them. One was behind like an air intake 
thing in the wall where you wouldn't know that that was just a safe behind, like, you know, it's stuff like that. And of course, in the weeks to come, officers thought that was very interesting, I'll put it, (laughs) that I didn't know how to get into those safes and that I didn't know who the mortgage was paid. Like, and they would, it wasn't through me that started thinking that. It was more through them feeding stuff to me saying, well, don't you find this interesting that, you know, and they would go off on some crazy scenario. And so to answer your question, no, not in the beginning. I felt like I knew him. Um, The officer said, you know, so you feel like, you know, everything about him, you guys didn't have any secrets and, and you guys aren't social drinkers and you guys aren't this and this. And I said, no, you can go down to my fridge. You can look through my cupboards. You won't even find it beer down there. So, you know, it was things like that. I said, no, we're just a very happy, normal, newly married, newly pregnant couple, you know, church going, um, traveling, happy. But I will say the longer this went on, I started to wonder because I, I would hear the rumors. Maybe there were, um, drugs being run motorcycle dealership that I didn't know about. Maybe it was the chop shop and I didn't know about that. Like I, I heard all, all kinds of things and you know, I would, I would think, well, his mom worked there. His mom was the office manager. She surely would have picked this stuff and, and she would have known. I really feel like she would have known and there's no way she would have let her son get away with, oh, she would have turned him in. I didn't take him super serious, but I did have little bits of maybe he was into something. Yes. So you've kind of alluded to the fact that this wasn't something that they figured out right away. How long did it take for them to figure out or have they figured it out? They have. Um, okay. How long I, did that take? Well, before we got to that point, I was one of their suspects. Oh, I mean, the spouse is always a suspect. Which I'm, I'm going to be on. I'll be honest. That's, I think that's criminal justice 101. You know, you have a, a murder and you start with their inside circle and you start going outward. And so it made perfect sense to me. And I was completely fine with them coming in and searching my house and going through my computer and our files. And I didn't make them get a warrant. I just said, no, come in and search. And if there's anything you can find and anything that's going to help you, that's what I want. So I feel like they knew more about me than my mother and my father did. They knew what kind of toilet paper you used. They did. They did. They were probably very interested in that. They were. (laughs) Yeah, And lipstick I wore. Um, How did they treat you as far as, because if you're a potential suspect, you know, obviously, like, you know that. In the beginning, I was questioned heavily. I was actually questioned on the day of the viewing, which we didn't have an actual viewing. I was told, I I never claimed his body, for one. I sent my my church bishop in. Um, I didn't want to see him dead. My last memory was waving and blowing a kiss, and that's how I wanted to keep it. And, you know, for me, I just kept thinking, I cannot get upset. My body went into protection mode. I really got to hang on to this pregnancy. It's all I got, you know, and that's really kind of where my focus went. And so um, I didn't go in. I didn't see him dead. Him and his mom were together at the morgue. Um, I was told they looked good, but that it was obvious that they were shot closely in the head. 
and also in the chest. Um, the chest area wouldn't have shown, but they, you know, had to, with clay, put their side of their, his head and the front of it back together. And so mom was not shot in the head. She was only shot in the chest. So those are um, things, you know, I was told later that I'm glad I did not walk in and I'm glad I didn't see him. Um, so that day they came in and they interviewed me for about four hours in my home. And we, I mean, we talked about everything. We, we covered everything. They wanted to know, you know, well, did you guys have an affair? No. Did you guys meet while he was married? Yes. Um, you know, they, they had, I mean, they had questions about all that, which was fine. You know, I, again, I didn't care. I'd have told them anything. I let them read every card I ever mailed them. I let them everything. They had everything. I let them take my hard drive from the computer. Um, they brought in somebody to drill through the um, safes because I didn't know the thing. Although I found them, you know, right after they drilled through. I them, wanted so. to know that. I was going to ask, like, how did how do you get in there? I know from like the movies, but how do you how do you do that? They drilled. Maybe they did you they a favor because right you would have had to have paid somebody to do it. Oh, totally. Maybe. No, totally. So that was fine. And then once we opened all that up, we had, they found like $70,000 in cash in one of them. And again, to some people that seems like, oh my gosh, why so much? To me, that wasn't, I mean, not that we were just like rolling in it, but that was nothing for, for us to have something like that because of the type of business he was in. So I didn't think anything of it. Life insurance policies, um, the house, the mortgage paper, like it was stuff like that. There was a gun in there, but it was his own registered gun, his personal. Um, so it really wasn't any, anything I was too alarmed about. Um, that was pretty much the questioning that I had was, was about four hours and it was very in depth. Um, they asked me, you know, if next week, the week after, you know, we buried him and stuff, if I would be okay with going down and submitting to um, prints and a polygraph. And I said, yes, totally fine with that. And they, you know, they kept, they made me feel pretty comfortable about it. I mean, I never really felt at that time, like, whoa, we're zoning in on her and she's our suspect. Like I, I didn't get that vibe from them. Um, and I know how officers work and I know they try to buddy, buddy up with you and try to get you to spill everything. And, and I already, I mean, I, I knew that, but again, there was really nothing for me to spill. So, you know, um, we got got him buried. We had uh, Scott's services with his moms. They were conjoined. Um, we did them together. It was very large. Um, there was like 2000 people there. It was a lot. Um, there were news cameras everywhere. They were in my face. We buried Scott, his service manager right after, um, same day. So we went from that, um, burial to, um, Brian's. And we, we got that over. I went the next week. I did the polygraph. Um, polygraph, I've never done one before. I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but when you have some wires hooked up to your fingers and right under your chest, and they're asking you the very pointed questions of, did you murder your husband, Scott? Did you plan the murder of your husband, Scott? Did you pay someone to murder your husband, Scott? Did you conspire with someone to, like, it was questions like that. And, you know, as crazy and nerve wracking as those questions were, I felt like I really held it together. 
I really did. And after it was all said and done, that itself was a four hour process. Every time I hear about people taking polygraphs and, and they say that the polygraph registers stress levels, right? Yes. That's really what it's yes. registering. I feel like I would fail every question, even <laughs> if I was innocent. Let me tell you the question I failed. So I didn't fail anything relating to the murder. He asked me if I ever felt like I had hurt somebody in my past. And I said, no. But then I, you know, it's funny that he said I failed that one because he said, you, you failed this question. He was like, I feel like there's somebody from your past you, you feel like you might have. And I started thinking about my ex-husband. He, um, right before I married Scott, was found dead in his apartment from an overdose. I was already living in South Carolina. And so I have an ex-husband that has passed away and now a husband who is dead as well. So of course the questioning, they did question me about that. Um, and I'm sure I look like a black widow, black widow. I was going to say, I'm like stressed out for you right now. I'm like, this looks bad. You guys, $70,000 in the safe. (laughs) I know. I know. And then she's being questioned. I was, I was very calm. I was actually thinking during that time about our wedding day. And I had decided I was going to focus on that during the whole questioning process. And I was just going to think about that and how happy I was. And, and to be honest, I was able to really zone in on that day while they were asking me these questions. I had had a plan beforehand of what I was going to be thinking about and what I was, and I wanted it to be something very happy. And so that's what I did. I got through this um, polygraph. I passed it. They didn't think I had anything to do with it from the polygraph. Um, I gave birth to my child seven months later. That was a bittersweet day. I held my mom's hand in one hand, my husband's picture in the other, and had a C-section because I gave gave birth to a 10-pound baby, which was big for me. Not a big person. So um, he was just adorable. Were you eating your feelings? Um, After I got my... After I got my appetite back 100%, Dairy Queen, okay. peanut butter parfaits, and um, whatever Mexican food I could get my hands we on. We fully <laughs> condone that. But it took a while. It took a while to get back to that. Um, anyway, it was great. Um, he was a really, really good baby. He was born healthy. It was a good pregnancy, a good um, delivery. and So that all went fine. Um, he was about six months old when... I got a phone call from the sheriff's department and they wanted me to come in and talk to them because they had something very important to talk to me about. Me in my head, I'm thinking they know who did it. Oh my gosh, like this is it. They know, they know. They asked me not to bring my baby with them, with me, which I thought was interesting, kind of weird, but I did. I left him with my father-in-law and um, went down there. So I got down there, they put me in a conference room and sat me down in a corner um, and told me that they had received a tip that Scott was um, sterile and not able to have any kids and that they did a DNA test with a diaper I had left at the sheriff's office and that Scott's DNA did not match up to my baby's DNA. So who was the father? And I needed to, I needed to come clean. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm speechless. Oh my gosh. That, 
Yeah. Melissa, are you sure that you didn't make this whole story up? Because this is like super crazy. I didn't I did not make it up. I did not make it up. Did you pull this from the Lifetime (laughs) Network archives? No. I would love to say this is not a true story, but it is. You've gotta like do a movie or something. I'm right. I'm I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. I already have an editor and publisher, so I, I'm I'm writing all about it. Yeah, I want to be on okay. the pre-order okay. list. I'm getting okay. Okay. Yes, but true story. So these these detectives who I had trusted with my life, who I had trusted to solve this, now had me in a corner telling me they had DNA proof that my child wasn't Scott's. So my well, my thought process is. Oh my gosh. So I got the wrong sperm. <gasps> oh my gosh. With my, yeah, because I, you know, we had to have some help to get pregnant. And so I am thinking, I don't care whose baby this is. This is my baby. And I don't, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Not, oh my gosh, I can't believe that they would think that I'm involved. No, instead I'm thinking, um, that's my baby. I don't care what you say. That That's what I'm thinking. So I said, you guys, I thought they were joking. So I'm kind of laughing with them because it's kind of the relationship I had with them. Kind of playful, you know, I mean, it was business, but also personal. Um, when I realized they were serious, I said, I'm going to get my baby right now. I will be back. You guys will do a DNA test in front of me. You'll swab his mouth in front of me. I will watch you put it in that plastic bag and seal it. And I will watch you label it you know, to male. So that's exactly what I did. I went and got my baby. They swabbed his mouth. Um, they said they would expedite it. They had that test back within a week. At this point, I'm thinking, okay, now I have to apologize to me. They made a huge mistake. Now they are fully committed to their scenario. They now have two DNA tests that say that my husband is not the father of this baby. So I thought they were trying to pull a fast one on me, like thought they were trying to get me to admit to something that I was not involved in. And I said that to them. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. There were some four-letter expletives that came out of my mouth. And I told them that they needed to get their effing crap together and that they could no longer just call me. They could call my attorney and he would deal with them and that I was going to have a court order to have Scott's body exhumed so that I could have a proper DNA test run since I felt like there was something fishy going on. And I was dead serious when I said that. I was I was headed to my attorney's office to get that court order. Um, I got a phone call while I was driving there and one of the detectives said to me, there is something not right here. There's something, I don't know what's going on, Melissa, but we do have two DNA tests. And he's like, I don't know what to think, but I believe you, but I don't know what to think about all of this. And he said, let me do some digging. Let me do a little, you know, let, let me think this over. For it. So I let it ride. What they decided to do was test Scott's DNA with his mom's because his mom was killed with him. She, so she was at the crime scene as well. They did the DNA test. His DNA test did not match up with his mom's. And so what they... Whoa! Which is totally soap opera. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, it gets good. <laughs> so what had happened, because 
they tested Brian's Scott's service manager's blood from the crime scene with Scott's mother. What ended up happening, they mislabeled their DNA at the coroner's office, Scott's and his service manager's DNA. So they were comparing my baby to Scott's service manager's DNA and had Brian Lucas on Scott's. Um, yeah. So that is, that's what ended up happening. I was told, you know, twice that that was, you know, they wanted to know who I'd had an affair with and who I had conspired with. And um, it, it was scary beyond, I can't tell you how scared I was at that time because for me, DNA is DNA. We all know DNA is, it's 99.999% ironclad. And so, you know, I'm thinking they've got this DNA, but I know they're wrong and I couldn't explain it. And, but during that um, entire mistake, Scott's grandmother, who lived very close to the dealership, she had pancreatic cancer. She had been told by the sheriff's department that my baby was not her actual great grandson and died in the middle of that entire mess and left all of the family property to a sister that she hadn't talked to for like 15 years instead of to my son. That was hurtful. That was hurtful. I was treated like a, honestly, I was treated like a stranger at her funeral because the rumors had run rampant around there that I had had an affair and now there was, you know, proof that Scott wasn't the father. And that was, um, that was hard. It was really, really hurtful. I could have cared less about the property and the money. I could care less about that stuff. It's really the fact that she died thinking, you know, that that wasn't even her own great grandchild. Thinking that you were a hussy. A hundred percent. It was super, super hurtful. What was a real big slap in the face was Scott. Scott had been married before me. His ex-wife was at the funeral and she was treated more like royalty with her baby um, than my, me and my, my child, who was actually a relative. So it was hard. It was hard. I did contact the news because I had a great relationship with them out there. I used them, I felt like to my advantage to keep the story alive. Um, I contacted them with this information and they ran that as a front, you know, front page news story that night. And they um, contacted the sheriff's department and the sheriff's department had to publicly apologize to me on the news so that everybody out there knew the mistake that had been made. But you know, the damage had been done. And at that point I decided I needed to get out of South Carolina. I decided it was time. Come back to family, come back to my close friends. Um, that's pretty much the extent of me being a suspect, you know, in that crime. Um, years went on. I, you know, I don't know how, I mean, I do know how other widow widowers deal with things. I jumped into a marriage three years later and almost got right out of it as soon as I jumped into it, but I was pregnant. And so I would, without any doctor's help this time, it was actually quite shocking. And um, so that's where I got my other son from. Um, we were pretty much divorced before I, I mean, before I gave birth. So 
it was just one of those things where a lot of people, you know, push like, he's such a nice guy and you, you need to move on. And everybody's telling me what's best for me. And really I should have listened to everything my head and heart were telling me that I wasn't ready. And, um, fortunately to this day, he's a really good friend of mine and we co-parent wonderfully and he lives a few miles down the road. We don't even follow any type of quarter. It's honestly, it's wonderful. So we were able to salvage that thankfully. <laughs> to everybody listening, we talk about this a lot and try to, to continue to talk about it a lot because uh, it's so easy for, for us to be in these vulnerable situations and listen to other people that are saying, well, this is what you should do, or like, you should move on, or you should do this, or you shouldn't do this. And it's like, trust your gut. Yes. So thanks yes. for sharing that. Cause that's a, well, that's a big one. I, um, I feel like I, I got into too much that I shouldn't have gotten into when it came to relationships. I just, you know, I didn't turn to drugs. I didn't turn to alcohol. I didn't turn, I did turn to shopping a little bit. I'm going to be honest about that one. Me and Nordstrom became really, really good friends. I broke, I broke up. I broke up with them after a while when I, <laughs> I just bought like a ton of luggage <laughs> for whatever reason when you can't even go anywhere. So I love luggage. Um, no, but yes, I was, in a, I was in a very serious relationship with Nordstrom and, um, yes, we broke up, but I, um, that is something that I feel like that was my drug of choice. I was looking for the next relationship, looking for the next marriage, looking for the next, um, I don't know. I mean, and, and that's something that I'll be, I'm covering a lot in my book, like things that I'm talking about that I was always so embarrassed about. I didn't want people to know, you know, that, oh my gosh, I've been married too many times and I've, I've done this and, and I, you know what, it's the way it is. It's life and it happens. And Okay, but you need to know this, Melissa. You and Mel are even more alike than you even know because she was married and divorced and then remarried and her second husband died too. So... But my first husband did not die. die. And she also was never a murder suspect that we know of. Not yet. (laughs) Not Not yet. yet. Um, I'm still young, Anita. Watch your back. Yeah. No, that's really common. I'm finding out that a lot of widows get into either marriage too quickly. For me, it was three years. And so I think a lot of people felt like that was decent time. But I was still hanging on to an unsolved quadruple homicide investigation that wasn't going anywhere and was still hanging in the air. And so I think that was really hard. For one, um, Brad, my, my ex-husband, who's the father of my, my son, I think that was hard for him. Law enforcement would be calling and talking to me about stuff. He didn't want to talk about that. He didn't, and he wasn't very sympathetic to me either. And that caused a lot of problems between us because I didn't ask for that. Um, I know he didn't either, but he knew what he was marrying when he got into it. And I'll be honest, it was bitter. It was bitter for about a year. And then it's like we woke up one day and said, you know what? We love these kids. We're acting like idiots. It is not their fault. Let's be happy and let's raise these kids and let's let's make a good life for them. And and honestly, it was like we both kind of had that awakening at the same time. And I'm so grateful. We have not had an issue since my son was probably one or two years old. He's 13. So So you've had one good thing 
I, Happy. yeah. Good job. Amazing. Amazing. It was a divorce, but man, you deserve it, it, it was, I'm grateful that he's a good friend. He's a good friend of my now husband. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, we, I, you know, I went through the years. I, I decided to go back to school and get my criminal justice degree since I had been thrown in the justice system and I knew it like the back of my hand. I went to school, got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I liked it so much, decided I needed my master's in it as well. So I kept going and I, so that's one thing I shopped and I got a master's degree. So those are the positive thing and had a baby, <laughs> positive things that came out of it. Um, I, was very intrigued with the things that I learned while I was getting these degrees because I learned all the things that were done wrong, you know, through, over the course of this. And, um, you know, and there was a lot that wasn't handled appropriately. Um, I was still very good friends with Brian Lucas, who was Scott's service manager, with his parents and his sister. Stayed really, I'm still very close to them, actually. It's like a second set of parents. They remained very active with law enforcement down in South Carolina and kind of kept me informed of everything that was going on because I didn't really hear from them much anymore. Um, when a new detective would get on the case, I would get a call and they would say, hey, um, you know, I'm so-and-so. Would you mind talking to me? You know, and, and that was fine. That didn't happen often, but every once in a while. Um, for, we're going on 17 years this November. Four, four years ago, almost four years ago, November 5th, which would have been 13 years to the day, I was walking out of a movie theater with my husband, and um, I got a phone call from the detective that was working on the case, and he said, are you somewhere where you can talk to me pretty seriously in about an hour? And I said, sure. And he said, make sure you're somewhere where we can talk for a while and, um, and that you can hear me. And I was like, this is weird. I said, okay, bizarre, but okay. So I told my husband, we need to get home. I want this all recorded because again, I had been put through <laughs> a lot by the sheriff's department and I wasn't going to let him do it again. Did so they tell you that your second baby was not your baby either? <laughs> right. <laughs> No. We've done no. the DNA. Yeah, no. Sorry. But dang, that would not have surprised me. Um, <laughs> we get home. I called Lorraine Lucas, Brian Lucas's mother, out in South Carolina, said, have you gotten a call from the sheriff's department? Are they acting weird towards you? She said, yes, they are. They're saying they want to talk. And, like, and I said, okay, this is so weird. We have to talk after all of this, okay? He calls back. Um, I've got my husband sitting there. He's on speakerphone. We've got the whole thing recorded. And um, he says, have you been watching the news lately? And I said, yes. And he goes, have you seen this girl that was chained up in a, a Connex shipping container out in the middle of nowhere? I said, I have been watching this actually. And he said, well, um, Melissa, we got him. And I said, got who? Like, what are we talking about here? You know, he kind of threw me off and he said, we know who murdered Scott. And I, I mean, I, you know, you just don't know what to say. I, 13 years had gone by. I knew nothing. I had been accused of horrible things. I, so to get this phone call, you know, and so I said, are we talking about the same guy that has this girl 
tied up like a dog? He said, yes. He said, we actually found her alive a couple of days ago. Um, when we got her in the ambulance, she immediately started telling us all these crazy things he was telling her, like he had killed four people at a motorcycle dealership over a decade ago and nobody had caught him and he had gotten away with all this stuff and he had a married couple buried on his property. All this ended up being true. Um, so this girl's in, you know, the ambulance. She says that to these detectives who immediately freeze like, wait, you know, what did you just say? Because the same detectives that are working on, you know, my unsolved homicide or had been working on it years ago. And for her to say that to them kind of stopped them, you know, dead in their tracks actually. So that, um, news story broke after they told me, then the news story broke nationally that they had solved an unsolved quadruple homicide in the state of South Carolina. And then our lives were turned upside down. <laughs> so the girl was also in South Carolina. Yes. So within 24 hours of me being notified that they had solved my husband's murder, I had 48 hours in my house out of New York, um, in Arizona. I had CBS evening news. I had people magazine. I had, um, associated press. I had all the local news stations here. Um, I had Crime Watch Daily. Um, I had Inside Edition, which is one I would never do again because it's so tabloidy. Um, and it just, ugh. but I had all these just news stations and they were literally taking turns coming in my house, setting up their, their news cameras and their, and I would spend about an hour to two hours with each different news entity that day. Um, it was, I, I cannot tell you how exhausting it was. And it was all the same questions, you know, do you know this guy? Do you know why he would have done it? Do you know, I mean, I, I, and these were all things I didn't know yet, you know, and do I feel closure now? And I hate that oh. word. Why? Why does anybody associate something like any any part of losing a loved one closure like really it's totally the wrong it's, word no like, i have a mm -hmm. i have an explanation it doesn't satisfy me and i now know why but no closure is when you get what you had then restored to you and that's not possible like you lost your wallet and then you found your wallet and you found it so there's some closure do you know Josh Mankiewicz from yes. Dateline? He says that he hates the word closure so much, too, because obviously the, he works with a ton of families that have had murdered uh, loved ones. And he goes, he's like, one day I want to write a book called The Myth of Closure. That's a great um, title for a book. There is no closure. Your life changes in an instant, and it's never, ever, ever going to be the same, no matter how happy you make it and no matter how great you're doing there's always, even if you've been able to close that hole up, it's still there. It doesn't go away. So does closure happen when we die? <laughs> Who knows? I don't think so. Maybe for I don't, us. Maybe. And, if, and, and, and in all honesty, I hope so. I don't know. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope so. Mel, I didn't realize we... I know, I didn't realize <laughs> we had somebody, like, super duper yeah, fancy right. and, like... <laughs> 
interviewed by all these people, I just was like, hey, lady, right. come be on our podcast because Mel said so. Right. So that that's what happened. I did watch on, I watched on um, TV or like via circuit. I did watch his arraignment. I watched him walk in. He was not somebody I recognized. He wasn't a customer that I even knew. They told me his name. It was not somebody that I... Um, and it ended up being a disgruntled customer who had had a really, I mean, a sad life. I, I kind of dove into him a little bit after all was said and done to just kind of find out about him. Just, you know, just to kind of see. Um, cur- out of curiosity, he spent two years of his teenage life, he's my age, here in Arizona, going to high school. He lived with his biological father um, in Tempe. He kidnapped a girl and raped her at gunpoint. He tied her up and was actually convicted, pled guilty and convicted at like 15, 15 years old. And he served a 14-year sentence out here in our maximum security prison as an adult. He was released from here in Arizona and then went back to South Carolina where he was from and where his mom lived to hopefully start his life over. And so he started, you know, with realty school. He did not disclose that he, you know, had a, I think he disclosed that he had uh, a record, but not that he was registry and because, you know, you can't get a realtor's license and stuff like that. So how he got through all those loopholes, I don't know. But I want to say that he probably killed Scott, his mom, and uh, Brian and Chris within about two years of moving back to South Carolina and starting his life over. Um, he had bought a motorcycle. He wrecked it. He tried to bring it back. He felt like they were making fun of him and took it a little too serious, you know, and I think the thing is, is he didn't understand their playful banter that went on at that. They did. They messed around a lot. It was always a joke, always something going on, you know, funny. And he was a very socially inept individual, which is surprising being that he did so well in, in real estate. Um, he went on with his life after all this and created a life of a very successful realty for like 10 more years and made a lot of money and did really well after after he did this. So, um, I, yeah, yeah. So would this be, uh, categorized as a serial murder and a serial killer? Cause that's what he, more than three people. Yes. He is a serial, he is a serial killer, but he's put in that category because not only did he kill, you know, the four people at the motorcycle dealership, but then he kidnapped this girl who he had held hostage for 65 days he killed her boyfriend in front of her and then buried him on the property and then disclosed that there was another married couple buried on his property that he had killed the year before. And so what we know of now is that he's, I mean, what we know of, he's admitting to more people, but he's not saying who, where, because um, ironically, he's afraid of the death penalty. So he wants to have immunity to being put to death you know, by law enforcement and I, which I, you know, whatever my, my thing is, is, um, whatever, he's never going to get out. 
Um, he is in prison for seven consecutive life sentences, plus another 60 years for the rape of the girl he held captive. Um, he was very smug during his interrogation when he actually admitted to it. Um, he was real smug with the, the law enforcement officer that was interrogating him, telling him how proud he would be of his, his shot and stuff like that. I mean, just, you know, not normal not a normal person. I was able to read a couple of his psychological evaluations. Um, he had one when he was really young, like 10 years old, and he put like bleach in the family fish bowl to watch the fish die. He um, just, you know, I do think there's some people that are born with some odd traits and they either learn how to navigate that positively or don't know how to deal with it. and you get a serial killer. So we had those indicators because now like research, isn't it saying if they hurt animals or are bedwetter and there's another thing like they're, they're predisposed. And he definitely had that. He had, he had dead animals as well. Yes. He killed. I'm upset by this. As being affected, you know, obviously like uh, your husband was his victim and then in turn, you're the victim as well. Um, in, In some crime media podcast sorts of things people um i've noticed that hosts sometimes they don't like to talk so much about the killer because they feel like it's giving a platform to them and they're like yeah well these things were so horrible um for the victim so like let's just not talk about why this person is how they were but what is your opinion because that's for me i'm just like these indicators maybe somebody could have caught this ahead of time. Um, what's your opinion on talking about the reasons why these killers do that? Right. That's a, that's a really good question, actually. And I'm, so two things. I feel like, obviously, mental health played a 100% part in this. I mean, he meant, was mentally unhealthy. He didn't know how, which, again, is so surprising being that he was successful and guilty, but I could tell by the way he walked in for um, his plea and his sentencing. It was done, you know, we, we were able to be there in person. Um, he almost walked in sheepishly like a, a little boy that didn't know how to act, you know, just kind of looking down. It, it just was so bizarre for me to watch this, you know, grown man walk in and, and not really know. Of course, Let's be honest, there was probably a hundred cameras going off and news stations and yeah, and that's, he didn't look up at any of them, but he just, you could just kind of tell. He just, in, in social situations, didn't know how to conduct himself. Um, and I, you know, I pick up on that with people. And if I ever do get with somebody that seems like they're uncomfortable, and like even with kids at the school where I, where I teach, I feel like there's kids that sometimes you just need to engage them in conversation and, you know, talk a little bit about them and talk and just try, you know, try. And I, in reading his psychological evaluations, he was just kind of passed off from grandparents who supposedly tied him to a tree and whipped him, um, was put in a psych ward at 10 years old and not visited for like three months. Nobody came to visit him in prison in Arizona the 14 years he was here. I can't imagine what you know, what happened to him as a young, he wasn't even an adult yet when he was tried as an adult and put in an adult prison. Um, 
did he belong in prison? He raped somebody, of course. But, you know, I do feel like there were a lot of indicators there. And I don't have a problem talking about somebody that's committed, you know, crimes like this when we can talk about the fact that there were some mental health indicators. They were, to me, blaring like there is something definitely wrong with this person. Will he reoffend? That they said that when he was convicted as a teenager, he will. Like it was said. Not to go all true crimey, but like Ed Kemper yes. and like these serial killers that are like yes. very well known and they have all the indicators. This guy is in that same category. He is. And it, it's funny that you bring him up because I have a friendship with John Douglas who's the FBI criminal profiler, you know, that they did Mindhunter. He, um, he did a profile of, of the crime scene, of Scott's crime scene. And then he ended up writing a book about our crime, one of his latest books that he just released has our um, story covered in it. Um, and he has talked to me a little bit about the things with Todd Colehep, who's the man that, that murdered Scott and my mother-in-law, Beverly, um, and, and said... You know, when I went out this profiling, I knew it was that was very angry, that was social, that, you know, um, didn't know how to talk normally with people, didn't know how, like he said all this and his was a loner, was, he said all this and his, and law enforcement out there kind of threw it to the side didn't pay much attention to it, which is crazy to me because he's supposed to be like the father of the FBI criminal profile. And you have like the person and, you know, we also had a list of the top 20 people that law enforcement should be looking at. And Todd was on that list as well. What? And they had that. Oh, from okay. The they had that from the get. I just, I'm just feeling upset right now because <laughs> like Four years ago, my, my, I don't know how, he's seven now, so he was like four at the time. Okay. He killed one of our fish because he put shampoo in the container to clean the fish bowl. So you guys are like talking about this, no, and I'm like, no, oh no. Cleaning the fish bowl. I know. That's right. Much different. Much different. But I'm like, Maybe I have a fish killer bath. too. He might have been giving the fish a bath too. So let's. <laughs> yeah. He was just but, trying to help. I know. Yeah, that but is. But it was sad for that the is not fine. putting something in it to watch it die. That's different. That's we didn't figure it out either for a little while because I started to clean out the fish bowl and it was mm -hmm. like bubbling like crazy. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then I noticed a whole shampoo bottle on the counter and I was like, what's going on? And he was like, I was trying to clean the fish bowl. Right. Anyway, right. I'm nervous um, now. We were able to um, get him sentenced get him put in prison. He's in a, you know, a maximum security prison in South Carolina. As um, families, we came together and decided to sue him for damages and wrongful death, mainly so that none of his money would go anywhere he wanted it to go. <laughs> That's kind of what the point was of that. Um, we decided that uh, Kayla Brown, who was the girl that he had um, tied up and held captive for 60 days, um, 65 days, she would get half of anything recovered and the rest of us families would split what was left. So um, are we going to end up with anything substantial? No. Um, it, it's just, Really, it was just so that he didn't get a say. That's really all that was about. 
when we had our damages hearing, that was last summer, was kind of our final hearing with him. Um, I had had two years, two and a half years to really learn about him, take in what his life had been like, um, not excusing any of the things that he had done because it's damaging, but really think about it and knew I was going to be sitting across from him face to face. And um, it was at that point that I felt, you know what, I can tell him that, it, that I forgive him. I can tell him that, you know, for me to be able to go on peacefully with my life and feel, you know, that there's really nothing left unsaid, undone. I, I, I just need to tell him that, you know, I forgive him. And so my son and I, you know, my son who never met his dad, never met his grandmother, we sat together and we kind of put together what we were going to say on the stand. And, um, I, they actually had me go up there first, which I, I was so mad because I didn't want to be the first one, but went up there and I was very composed and thought I would be, um, you know, I'm just going to be very stoic. And, and I got it there and I started reading my statement and I looked at him and I just started sobbing. And it was more out of, I hurt for him more than anything. I, I'm at a point now where because I did everything I could possibly do in my own life to make peace with what had happened and then also peace with myself. It was at that point that I could move on in a happy marriage and like actually think, oh, I deserve happiness and I'm an okay person and I don't need to have a man in my life. I want this man in my life. And that's actually when I met Chad and we got married and things got, you know, exponentially 10 times better for me. Um, and I'm, I was at that point. And so being able to sit across from him and just look at him and feel all of the sadness and everything that has, you know, gone on in his life, not to justify it. You don't kill people when you've been cast aside and when you've, you know, had sadness and you've had, trust me, I'd kill a lot of people that hurt me, <laughs> but you know, that's where I was at the point. And I, and I still am. I mean, that's, um, and so I told him that I knew that my late husband would want me to apologize to him for whatever they did to make him feel less of a person, to make him feel, you know, insecure and make him feel, um, and I, and I told him that's not who they were. They were, it was a family friendly business. And I'm so sorry that his interaction was like that with them because Scott would feel bad that that's how a customer, you know, felt. Um, and it actually was so freeing for me. I, I if, huh, that took so much off of me because I, um, um, and, you know, and again, I didn't excuse him and I told him, you know, you, you've made your bed and you unfortunately have to lay in it. And that makes me sad because I still have this beautiful life and I'm still, I, I'm happy and I get to travel and I get to watch my kids grow up and I get to do all these wonderful things. And these are things you're never going to experience. And that's the part of it. I think that made me so sad. Did he react when you were telling him this? He was not emotional, but he definitely, he was very intent on everything I was saying. He wasn't, you know, looking away. He wasn't, he looked at me and he took, you know, everything I said. Yes, I could tell. I mean, it, 
it meant something to him. And, and, you know, again, I really didn't care if it did or not, you know, selfishly, I was doing that for me because I needed to let go of all of that. Um, he has absolutely no idea. He probably does now, but the damage that was caused to me over the course of this 13 years, the falsely being accused of being involved in and out of marriages, um, like he, he'll, I don't know if he'll ever have any idea of literally the pain and the crap that I went through to just try to recover from all of this and to be able to sit across from him and tell him that I forgave him and was me kind of taking all of that time and saying, you know what, it's gone. I've gotten rid of it. Um, it's there. It's my story. And I'll tell it and I'll tell, you know, tell it very bluntly, but it, it just felt so good. And my son was able to do the same. He sat in front of him and told him I never wanted to die. I told my mom I didn't want her to sign over on the death penalty. It was a death penalty case. It could have been. Um, all of his families decided not to pursue the death penalty because if we didn't, he would plead guilty and we would have him sentenced, which we did within six months of it being solved. And so we didn't have to go through all the appeals process and we don't have to do any of that. It's done. Um, that is thing that he says he wants going forward. If he turns over where some of these bodies are, he wants to have the same deal. Unfortunately, those would be all new cases, you know, with new families, new people, new, and, you know, I don't, that's out of our hands. So, but my son was able to do it. We were able to, you know, get that off of our, our chest and, um, you know, and as weird as it is, I mean, I, it's not that I just don't think about this person and I think, oh my gosh, I hope, you know, everybody beats the crap out of him. I don't, I don't really think like that. I, I'm curious sometimes, um, you know, I wonder what life is like for him on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, I don't know. I guess that's the, the human side of me. Well, I just think it's excellent because you have, you have taken, taken responsibility for your own well-being and you've taken that power away from him and put it back in yourself. Right. So it doesn't excuse him, but you are still able to say, I get to control my own thoughts and feelings and emotions and I get to do this and I get to be in charge of myself. Yeah. And you are not in charge of me, even though you put me through hell. You know, like, I think that's that, not even a strong enough word for it. I don't think. I think, you know, like the next day and this isn't this isn't why I did it. But the next day, um, it actually went viral that, you know, widow forgives. And I had somebody send it to me like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is going viral. And I thought, well, that's not why I did it, but good. Because I feel like a lot of people in our position, the longer they hold on to these feelings of resentment, they're literally robbing happiness from their life. And I'm not saying it's easy. It took me 13, 14, 15 years to get to that point. So it wasn't like an overnight thing where, you know, I thought, okay, I think I'll forgive the guy that murdered my husband and I'll just, you know, that'll be good for me and we'll move on. No. Everything's fine. Yeah, everything's great. No, I took time. I, I read his psychological, like I really thought long and hard about this and thought about what it was doing to me to hold on to some of this. And, you know, if there's anything that I could tell anybody out there that's, dealing with resentment or feelings of hate or that's a, a 
one day at a time type of thing. And you have to, for your own well-being, you have to work on getting rid of that. You have to, because you want to be happy. And I want people to feel happy. I don't want them, you know, to sit in their misery and waste their days away. It's just not worth it. What's a, a good first step that you would offer as advice for somebody that wants to start letting things go, but isn't quite sure of what to do? For me, I kept a, a journal and I wrote down things that were bothering me and then would write down things of what I could control about the things that were bothering me and what I could not. Um, I, can, I can control um, what, how I'm reacting to all this. I can control um, the way I respond like to the questions the news was asking me. I, I tried really hard not to come across as being a super bitter individual. More, more, you know, more humble. Obviously, I was very humbled by this. I don't know how anybody couldn't be. You have everything taken from you, you know. But I, I feel like writing a lot of this down, and then writing how is it going to help me to work through this and let this go? What will what will be the outcome from this? You know, instead of, you know, I hate this person so much. They took this and this, and of course, I mean, and we all know that. You know, that's that's the hard part, the sad part. But I think if you can imagine what your life is like, not having those feelings anymore, which that's really hard to imagine. It is. But I thought about it a lot. I didn't want to hate this person. Believe it or not, I will go see him at some point. That's not right now. Um, the time is not right now. At some point, I will, I will go see him. Um, and I'm, I'm, Brian Lucas, his mom and I have discussed it, and it's something we'll do together. But yeah, at some point. That's amazing. <laughs> Anita can't speak. <laughs> well, oh, she's also muted. <laughs> I, was, I was muted because I'm just like, I did not know what I was getting myself into Sorry. when we started this uh, podcast today. No, it's okay. I, hey, like, I sent you <laughs> things to read. I can tell you didn't read them. Whatever. Every player in this story has a thread that relates to mental health. Every single yes. one. What are some things that are on your mind as far as how you are perpetuating the cause for better mental health? Um, for one, I had to seek treatment. <laughs> I had to learn how to deal with my sorrow. Um, the, you know, the night that Scott was murdered, I had my OB calling me asking, do you want me to prescribe, you know, this and this and because it's all pregnancy safe and you'll be okay. And it was like sleeping pills and anti like all this stuff. And I'm thinking, whoa, like I'm pregnant. <laughs> I can't do this. You know, even though he was telling me this funny thing is, is four months into that pregnancy, I was sitting at his desk begging for the medication at that point. Like you said, this was pregnancy safe. I am not afraid to tell anybody. I've been on Zoloft for uh, 17 years now. And I'm not a um, perpetually miserable person. In fact, I'm a really happy person. And, I, and it's taken a lot to get here. And I, and I feel good about my day-to-day -day life. And I, but again, I've worked hard to get here. Zoloft takes the edge off. And I'm okay telling it. I don't care who asks me that. It is my happy pill. I love it. Um, and so when anybody asks me personally about stuff, I, I'm real honest with them. Like, look, I have always been a very positive, happy person. 
I had the wind knocked out of me very severely. And I needed something that just made things that were pretty dang bad seem not so bad. And I've tried to go off it a couple of times. And the doctor has said to me, why? Why are you doing? He's like, not that I'm telling you, oh, hey, you need to take, you know, medication for the, but he's like, what is your reasoning? Is it because of a stigma attached to it or, and you know, that really, I think the two times I've, that really has been my reason. Like, well, I don't want, you know, people to think I have to take, because realistically, I probably don't, but why not? Um, it really has made things so much better for me. Um, it hasn't lessened my crying. It hasn't lessened my emotions. It hasn't made me not feel things. I still feel everything I should feel. Um, I just feel like it has helped me cope and not numb me. And I think that there's reasons that we have, you know, prescriptions such as this, um, reasons that we go to counseling. I am a huge promoter of counseling, but I will also tell anybody um, counseling is one of those things that you have to find the right piece to the puzzle because not every counselor is cut out to be your counselor. Um, I've learned that the hard way. I think that it's, it's kind of finding that diamond in the rough or finding the prince after you've kissed a lot of frogs. You have to go through a few before you find one that connects with you. Um, I'm now with my son who is 16 years old. He's now showing some signs of anxiety. Um, and I've been very careful with him over the years. I've never hidden anything from him, but I've also been, you know, careful. I'm just watching him. And I think it's some pretty normal teenage boy stuff, but at the same time, he doesn't have a normal story. And so when he is coming to me and saying, mom, I have this major anxiety before a volleyball tournament. Like I literally don't want to come out of the bathroom and I don't, okay, we need to deal with that. I don't want that to cripple him. I don't want that to prohibit him from, and I don't want that for anybody else either. If there are things going on in your life that you feel you cannot control, gosh, there is nothing wrong with reaching out and, and saying, I need help. Like I need somebody to help. I think that's one of the greatest things about opening up, let's say on this podcast or, you know, doing crime junkie or any of those news interviews. I didn't do it because I wanted to see my face. Trust me. I did not. That's not how I wanted to uh, get my Oscar and see, you know, not, not for that. Um, I just felt like the more I opened up with people and the more honest I was that it was going to help somebody else. And I think that, you know, what you're doing is super, super beneficial for other people. Because I think about when this happened, you know, almost 17 years ago, these kind of things didn't exist. There weren't podcasts about being a widow. Crime Junkie wasn't out there. There wasn't ways that you could have an outlet and talk about these kind of things and help other people. And I love that this stuff is out there now. I love that there's Facebook groups devoted to being, you know, widow or widowers. I love that um, there's support groups out there. Those are just things that weren't so big, you know, years ago. And now that we have all this, 
people need to say, I need help. It's so great that social media is out there because for those people that have felt so alone in the past or felt like they were the only ones, now they know that it's really right. common. And I love that you've shared your story with us and you're, you've been totally transparent and I think it's going to help a lot of people. And, and that also helps create more empathy between us. Even if we can't understand other people's stories, at least we can understand what it's like to feel hurt or loss or to feel alone. Yes. I, and I've benefited anytime somebody, you know, has come up and shared their story with me or how they've coped with something. And, you know, we just, we learn, we learn over the years that I feel like the more we open our mouth and we are transparent, like you said, it breaks down some of those barriers and people feel like they can talk about things that they would never have wanted to talk about before. Um, yeah. I mean, again, like when I, I, I'm writing things right now that I never would have wanted for people to know, but I have more than one failed marriage. Oh my gosh. I have an, an ex-husband that's dead. And then a late husband, like I have things that people are going to, you know, if they were to hear all of that without knowing my story, they'd probably look at me and go, Oh, okay. Uh, boy, she's a, a repetitive marrier and divorcer and black widow. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm another Elizabeth Taylor. Well, I'm not that bad, but, um, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> how many did she have? Seven. Not that rich either. She had a lot, didn't she? Have eleven? I thought it was eleven. Oh, was it eleven? Thought it was eleven. That's go, you Liz. Got a ways to go, Queen Liz. <laughs> you're only like a quarter of a way to becoming Queen Liz. Yeah, <laughs> that Queen Liz. Yes. Oh man. Um. Oh, I also want to just remind our listeners that if you are concerned about taking medication because you don't want to play the guessing game of taking the wrong wrong medication, there is something out there called pharmacogenetic testing, pharma with a PH, like pharmacy. And you can look for a doctor that does that testing and it's DNA testing that helps you figure out which drugs metabolize in your body more quickly. I've used that personally and I've referred other people uh for the same services and I can't even tell you how it helped save some of the guesswork and then helped me be on a path to be feeling better, to be able to manage some of these issues dealing with grief way more quickly. So just a PSA for for that and drugs, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> we love yes, drugs. We do. Yay drugs. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Anita wasn't sure if she loved drugs in the beginning because that's just Anita and now it she loves drugs. So Melissa has graciously agreed to come back as our guest. So we are looking forward to that. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you. And Anita, I hope you learned some <laughs> thank things, you. even though you didn't research like I did. Did I knew that I knew her husband had been killed, none but of none of the, of the rest crazy. of the stuff. <laughs> yes, it got crazier than even the stuff. You well, said, I didn't so. know a lot of that either. Okay. But yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you found this um interview if nothing else the most jaw-dropping story we've ever had <laughs> oh my goodness i have to go get something to drink now um just remember that you want to join the widow wives club if you're a widow or widower and remember that you need to answer the questions we're not letting you in if you don't answer the questions because we don't want weirdos in our group and if you have a hard time with the questions send us a message on facebook messenger and we will help you yes and then also remember to check out our patreon help us keep the podcast going 
And in the meantime, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. And I'm Melissa. And we're just two young widows and a lady with the craziest story of all time trying to figure out widow we do now. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not, who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So if somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.